Due to the sensitive nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, domestic violence, and pregnancy loss. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Just after 10 p.m. on Sunday, July 11, 1897, the sheriff of Greenbrier County heard a loud banging at the door. When he opened it, a local farmer ran inside. Between hurried breaths, he told the sheriff an angry mob was gathering only six miles away. The rioters were livid about a court verdict from a week earlier. Trout Shoe had been found guilty of murdering his wife, Zona Heaster. But the jury hadn't unanimously voted for capital punishment, so the judge had sentenced him to life in prison. Even though Trout would never be a free man again, many Greenbrier residents felt he got off too easy. They wanted him to pay for killing his wife. They planned to storm the Lewisburg jail and take matters into their own hands. They were going to lynch Trout. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the Greenbrier ghost haunting. Last time, we discussed the whirlwind romance between Zona Heaster and Trout Shoe. After her unexpected death in 1897, Zona's ghost visited her mother Mary and explained Trout was to blame. Mary quickly spread the word, and Trout was convicted of murder. This episode will look at Trout's nefarious past to understand his motives— Then, we'll turn the lens on Mary and determine whether she may have fabricated the ghost encounter. Finally, we'll revisit the day Zona died to see if there are other explanations for what really happened to her. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? 
forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the summer of 1897, Trout Chu was convicted of his wife's murder. The jury sentenced him to life in prison, but that wasn't enough for the locals in Greenbrier County. They wanted to see him pay with his life. So, on July 11th, an angry mob assembled, intending to drag him out of the jail and lynch him. The sheriff heard of the plot and raced to intervene. He narrowly avoided death himself at the crowd's hands, but eventually he convinced them to disperse. Trout's life was spared. It was no surprise the locals wanted him dead. Ever since Mary Heaster first accused Trout of murdering his wife Zona, many assumed he was guilty. Sympathetic newspapers reprinted Mary's ghost story. They described her as an innocent old woman and called Trout a brutish fiend. To cap it off, Trout's trial in June was one of the most sensational in local history. As the prosecutors dredged up dark parts of Trout's past, his supporters dwindled. By the end of the hearing, nearly everyone in Greenbrier County saw Trout as an evil man. There's no record of a single family member visiting him while he was incarcerated. But the myth of Trout Shoe the monster was at least partially created by Zona's family, who claimed Trout murdered Zona because he was unhappy with the dinner she served him. His supposed motive does sound a bit far-fetched. So, to see if the truth measures up to the legend, we need to dive into Trout's past. Born Erasmus Shue in 1861, Trout was the fifth of nine children. After the Civil War ended in April 1865, his family bought land in West Virginia near the Trout Valley. Growing up, he was spoiled rotten, in part because he was gifted. Trout learned blacksmithing at an early age, and he could make just about anything out of metal. His skills were in high demand, and he knew it. No one who ever met Trout accused him of being humble, and Mary Heaster found him repellent because of his arrogance. But the talented Trout was also handsome and charismatic. He had a chiseled jaw, an artistic streak, and he knew how to cook a good meal. Women doted on him, and it didn't take long for Trout to settle down. In November 1885, Trout was engaged to a local teenager, Allie. But when Reverend R.R. Little arrived at the family's farm on their wedding day, it didn't look like a joyous celebration. Allie sat alone in a rocking chair while Trout's relatives largely ignored her. She seemed unhappy, and none of her family members were with her. She also looked incredibly young. Allie was 16 or 17 at the time, a full seven years younger than Trout. And as for the groom himself, he was nowhere to be found. He'd gone out earlier in the day to fetch their marriage license. The Reverend was shocked by the scene, But he wasn't quite sure what to do, so he pulled up a chair and got comfortable. Hours passed, and Reverend Little felt the tension in the air grow. He tried talking with Allie, but she remained quiet and withdrawn. The day waned, sunset came and went, and Trout still didn't come home. 
Finally, around midnight, he returned with a license. Unfortunately, Trout had gotten a marriage certificate for the wrong county. And to complicate matters, Allie's age was listed as 22, which Reverend Little had a hard time believing. So he explained he couldn't marry the couple at the family's farm. But this didn't stop Trout. He was determined. Rather than call off the wedding, he hit the road. Trout, Allie, and Little walked in the darkness for a mile until they reached the adjacent county where their marriage license was valid. By now, it was nearly 1 a.m., but Trout was still committed to giving his vows, a little too committed given Allie's apparent reluctance. Doubts gnawed at the Reverend's heart. He looked from Trout to his trembling teenage bride. The whole setup felt wrong. And finally, he declared he wouldn't go through with the ceremony at all. This enraged Trout, but Reverend Little stuck to his guns and departed. He only bought Allie a little time. Shortly after, the two were wed in Greenbrier County by a different pastor. Little's fears were soon confirmed. Soon after their wedding, Allie appeared in town with fresh bruises on her face, and everyone knew why. People grumbled to each other that Trout was a violent man. They suggested someone ought to teach him a lesson. And soon enough, someone did. One cold night in 1886, a group of high school boys and their teacher set out on foot toward Trout's cabin. When they arrived sometime around midnight, one of the teenagers yelled for help. Trout came out of his cabin to respond to the shouts, and the group grabbed the blacksmith. Trout went limp and began to cry. The crowd dragged him through the snow into a watering hole several hundred feet away. They gave him a warning. If he hurt Allie again, they'd come back. And next time, they wouldn't be so gentle. This story seemed to confirm Trout had a violent streak well before he met Zona. But Trout's grandniece, Winona, had a different explanation for the incident. Winona claimed Trout was a bad husband, but he wasn't actually abusive. In reality, he had an affair with a woman from another town. And after she bore his illegitimate child, the woman's brothers dunked Trout in the ice to punish him for his indiscretion. There's no way to know which account is true. In either case, Trout's marriage to Allie was off to a rocky start. To complicate matters, in 1887, they had a baby girl named Goethe. The child couldn't hold their crumbling marriage together. The next March, when Goethe was only one year old, Trout reportedly told Allie to pack a bag and get lost. According to Allie, he kicked both her and the baby out of the house. But Goethe later told her daughter Allie chose to leave, alone. She abandoned Goethe and Trout, but soon came to regret it. Then, she and her brothers jumped Trout and stole Goethe back. Whatever the circumstances, Trout was angry and isolated, and his behavior became self-destructive. He stole a horse in 1888 and was sentenced to prison. While he sat behind bars, Allie divorced him, alleging he'd been abusive. When Trout was released in 1890, he was seriously chastened. His reputation as a horse thief and a wife-beater made him persona non grata in his old neighborhood. He moved to neighboring Greenbrier County to escape the stigma. 
There, he met his second wife, Lucy Ann Tritt, who he married in 1894. But this marriage would also end in disaster. That winter, a series of severe snowstorms tore through West Virginia. And in February 1895, after a blizzard damaged their roof, Trout climbed up to fix it. As he added bricks to the chimney, one of them slipped out of his hand. And unfortunately, Lucy was directly beneath. The brick hit her skull, and she died shortly after. That's the story Trout told the sheriff. But Lucy's nephew said her family suspected the death was intentional. They supposedly seized rifles and chased Trout out of his house, nearly killing him. Unfortunately, there's no evidence of any of this, just hearsay from some distant relatives. So it's hard to say whether Trout was violently homicidal or if he was unlucky enough to be blamed for an unfortunate accident. The best proof we have of Trout's darker nature is the evidence that implicated him in Zona's death. If he did strangle Zona with his bare hands, it makes his alleged abuse of Allie and subsequent killing of Lucy more likely. Yet much of that evidence came from a grieving mother who said she saw the ghost of her dead daughter. That's a lot to take on faith. Perhaps an innocent man may have been convicted on the strength of Mary's lie. Coming up, the other ghost story that may have inspired Mary. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1897, Trout Shue was charged with the murder of his wife, Zona Heaster. His trial was sensational because Zona's mother, Mary, claimed she'd spoken with her deceased daughter in a vision. And she repeated this story on the stand. A ghost's legal testimony has never carried so much weight in the history of the United States. The prosecutors must have known how outrageous the account was because they tiptoed around Mary's visions during questioning. But during cross-examination, Trout's lawyer accused Mary of having dreamt the encounter. 
Mary insisted she'd been wide awake at the time, and the jury believed her. Of course, even if she was awake, this doesn't mean Zona was really there. Mary could have had a hallucination. A number of factors can make people see and hear things that aren't really there. Head injuries, psychoactive drugs, and mental health conditions like schizophrenia are some of the most common. But as far as we know, none of these applied to Mary. She never saw any visions before Zona appeared and didn't have any after. But another factor has been known to trigger hallucinations, grief. Grief is one of the most powerful emotions a person can experience. It can warp our perception of reality. A 1993 study showed nearly a third of elderly adults who'd recently lost spouses saw or heard hallucinations of them. And in 2002, a psychiatrist published case studies of middle-aged parents who reported talking with their deceased children. The hallucination can be more intense when you deprive a person of external stimuli like light and sound, which were the exact conditions when Mary saw Zona. Grieving and in terrible anguish, she stayed up late into the night, staring at shadows and praying for Zona to appear. Then, like magic, Zona seemingly emerged from her subconscious as an apparition. When you acknowledge Mary already suspected Trout of killing Zona, the content of her vision makes sense. Zona's ghost came because Mary wanted it to, and it said exactly what Mary expected to hear. But there's one problem with this scenario. Mary knew facts she shouldn't have, like granular details about the murder, right down to the exact vertebrae Trout allegedly crushed. She could also describe Trout and Zona's house in great detail, despite the fact that when she had her visions, she'd never been there. And when she finally visited about a month after Zona's first appearance, she saw blood behind the door, just as Zona had predicted. Mary gave even more details in a letter dated August 3, 1897, after the trial ended. She said Zona told her after Trout committed the murder, he took all her clothes to the basement and stuffed them in a moldy basket. When Mary looked for them at the house, they were right where Zona said they'd be. In other words, there were too many coincidences for it to have been a hallucination. Mary knew it, and the jury did too. But there are holes in Mary's story that should give us pause. Take Zona's supposed comments about how she died. In her version of events, Trout broke her neck by grabbing her head and dislocating the spine. But the autopsy revealed Zona had been strangled. This may seem like a minor discrepancy, but it's important because it shows that Mary didn't actually know all the information. As for the basket and the house's layout, someone else could have told her about them. Someone who also hated Trout and knew how to keep a secret. Like his first wife, Allie Cutlip. Let's rewind a bit. In 1889, Allie divorced Trout and moved back home with her infant daughter. Then, eight years later, she married again. Allie and her husband started a family in a nearby town in Greenbrier County. As fate would have it, their new home was close to Johnston Heaster, Zona's uncle, 
and the first person to hear and believe Mary's story. It's safe to assume Mary would have encountered Allie when she visited Johnston. And perhaps, once they began talking, they bonded over their mutual hatred of Trout. So after Zona's death, they came up with a plan to destroy him. Allie could have visited Trout's house after Zona died, then passed on a description of the property to Mary. Then, Mary could have pretended the information came from a ghost. We even know where she may have found inspiration for the plot. On January 28, 1897, one week after Zona's death, Mary bought a copy of the Greenbrier Independent to look for her daughter's obituary. The front page featured an incredible story about a man in Australia who claimed to have solved a murder with the help of a ghost. Fred Fisher was an ex-convict who went missing in 1826. Everyone suspected his neighbor, George Worrell, was responsible. But without a body, the authorities couldn't prove Fisher hadn't simply run away. So the government advertised a reward for information that would lead to his discovery. Soon after, on a crisp October evening, a farmer named John Farley walked home after a night of drinking. As he approached his property, he spotted something amazing. Fred Fisher, long dead by now, was lounging on the railing of a shallow bridge. Farley asked Fisher what he wanted, but the man simply pointed to the creek below. Then, like Zona's ghost, it faded away. This terrified Farley. The next morning, he went to the police and told them what he'd seen. They followed Farley to the creek and scoured the area. Before long, they found Fisher's body in the water. Soon afterward, the police arrested George Worrell, and the jury took less than 15 minutes to find him guilty. But then, in 1897, an article came out revealing Fisher's ghost was pure fiction. Farley had actually witnessed the murder, and he was too scared to tell anyone the truth. So he pretended a phantom led him to the body. Mary read about the case of Fisher's ghost on January 28th, and only a few days later, Zona reportedly visited her for the first time. This could have been a coincidence, but that doesn't seem likely. Instead, imagine an angry, confused, heartbroken woman. She's just buried her daughter, and she knows in her soul it was murder. She just can't prove it. Then she reads this article and it inspires a lie that will bring justice to Zona. Mary's not the only parent who has allegedly invented a ghost to solve a child's murder. If she'd done any more digging, Mary would have also come across the story of Maria Martin. Like Zona, Maria was a young woman who fell in love with a dangerous crook, a man named Bill Corder. In May 1827, Corder told Maria's family the two of them had eloped in a nearby city. After 11 months without any contact, Maria's stepmother, Anne, dreamed Corder had killed Maria and buried her under a red barn. When she told her husband, he found the body right where Anne said it would be. The discovery led to Corder's immediate arrest and conviction. Like George Worrell, he confessed publicly just before he was hanged. No doubt Mary Heaster hoped her own vision would help Trout meet the same fate. 
But if Mary invented the ghost story to entrap her son-in-law, we don't really know what happened to Zona. It's hard to speak confidently about her cause of death because there's one piece of the puzzle that doesn't fit with either strangulation or a broken neck, the trail of blood outside her house. Coming up, we re-examine Zona's demise. Now back to the story. In 1897, Trout Shue stood accused of murdering his wife, Zona. On the stand, he alleged his mother-in-law, Mary, had a vendetta against him. And to be fair, she did want him gone. Perhaps enough to fake a spectral encounter and frame him for murder. After all, Mary's testimony didn't fully fit the autopsy evidence. She claimed Zona's spine was broken while the doctors determined she was strangled. But neither cause of death can explain the spot of blood Mary found on Zona's door. Zona wasn't bleeding when she died. Her autopsy revealed very little physical damage. There was some minor bruising on her face and neck, particularly where she'd been choked. But otherwise, her body was completely intact. She couldn't have merely cut herself and bled on the door. To complicate matters, this wasn't the only blood a witness found. The 12-year-old neighbor who discovered the body, Andy Jones, described a trail of blood going into the house. Zona would have needed to bleed a lot. But since she didn't have any lacerations, that leaves one other explanation. A miscarriage. Miscarriages are very common. Doctors estimate anywhere between 10 to 20% of all clinically recognized pregnancies end in an early miscarriage. Most occur during the first three months before many women have a visible baby bump. This could explain why no one knew Zona may have been expecting. If Zona lost a pregnancy the day of her death, she may have suffered from symptoms like cramping, fever, and excessive bleeding which tracks with what we know about Zona's condition in her final days. For at least two weeks, Dr. Knapp, the local physician, had been treating her for what he called, quote, trouble. This could very well have been a euphemism for a difficult pregnancy. And Dr. Knapp seemed to confirm this possibility the next day when he changed Zona's cause of death to childbirth. Some people, like Trout's brother John, even claimed they saw a baby in Zona's coffin. However, that seems unlikely, considering how far along she was. But Dr. Knapp's diagnosis would certainly explain the blood. Unfortunately, we can't say how many women died from miscarriages during the 19th century because no one reported them. The only data we have is on women who died in the hospital before, during, or after childbirth— In that context, the mortality rate was anywhere between 40 to 80 per 1,000. That's at least eight times higher than it is today. But Zona lived nowhere near a proper hospital. In the event of a medical emergency, she was on her own. Perhaps she tried to stop the bleeding with a sheet. Remember, Trout put a sheet in Zona's coffin to prop up her head, and Mary noticed a strange odor on the linen when she took it out of the box. When she washed it later that week, the fabric turned red. She even displayed it in court, but she didn't try to explain what caused its odd coloration. But a miscarriage wouldn't break Zona's neck, 
Her throat was clearly crushed, and her spine was snapped below the head. Her death was a homicide, even if it didn't happen the way Mary said it did. However, the miscarriage narrative actually lends weight to Mary's case. If Zona did lose a child early in her pregnancy, that could be a stronger motive for murder than Mary's story about a fight over dinner. Trout may have blamed Zona for losing the baby and tried to punish her for it. Evidence suggested he was abusive to his first wife, Allie, and we know she took his only child away from him. Perhaps he saw Zona as his last chance at becoming a father. But Trout's own words undercut that idea. An article in the Pocahontas Times from March 1897, shortly after his arrest, claimed Trout boasted he'd lived to have seven wives. The reporter commented that with Zona's death, he had only four more to go. It's an odd statement to come from a grieving widower. It's also not what you'd expect from someone who'd put all his hopes on Zona. It's also worth noting the only person who actually saw the blood trail was Andy Jones. And his testimony was questionable. The early news reports about Zona's death never mentioned the blood on the ground. If Andy had talked about it, some journalist would have included the gory details in their coverage. The first account of the blood actually came years later in a 1910 interview with Andy, who by that time was in his late 20s. It's also odd that Andy claimed he was present for all of the major events of the investigation, including the autopsy. It seems unlikely the authorities would allow a 12-year-old child in the room during such a gruesome procedure. And there's one other inconsistency that casts doubt on Andy's testimony, the autopsy itself. We're told that doctors did a thorough examination of Zona's internal organs, including her ovaries and uterus. According to them, Zona was in perfect shape. And unless they were completely incompetent, it's unlikely they'd miss the evidence of a miscarriage. So it's quite possible Andy invented these lurid details after the fact. And in trying to make a more compelling story, he helped turn Zona's death from a historical event into an urban legend. As for the dried blood Mary saw when she visited Zona's house, it could have just been dirt or syrupy liquid. After all, Zona was an avid canner. It's hard to say what Mary found on the door that day. In fact, it's nearly impossible to sort out truth from fiction for any part of this case. We don't know if Trout was an abuser or if Mary invented Zona's ghost to put him in jail. So, like the jury in 1897, we have to decide Trout's guilt or innocence based on circumstantial evidence. Miscarriage or no, Zona was definitely murdered. And since we don't know of anyone besides Dr. Knapp or Andy Jones who visited their house, Trout seemed to be the most likely culprit. Based on that, we can assume justice was served with his conviction. As for his victim, her legacy lived on for a century afterward, all thanks to Mary's story. When you visit Greenbrier County today, you may spot a sign on Route 60 as it winds through Zona's old neighborhood. It commemorates, quote, the only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. As far as we know, that's still true. 
But there have been other, more recent examples of spectral trial witnesses. A judge allowed testimony from Michael Jackson's ghost during a dispute over his estate. Supposedly, the former pop star told a spirit medium his death was accidental and asked her to clear his doctor. We live in a strange world full of unexplainable wonders. As for whether that means ghosts can contact us from beyond the grave, the jury's still out. So, when someone claims they have a message from a departed loved one, it's probably best to exercise some caution. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with an all-new episode. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Chelsea Wood. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.